Hello, and welcome to episode 69 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which has an extensive fat catalog of 30-minute or less conversations with various interesting folks from around the tennis world. So when you're done listening to this episode and the previous 68 Tennis Abstract podcast episodes, be sure to check his out. You could even do that after listening to like 55 of the last 68 episodes because we've had a few clunkers. Definitely 13 or fewer though. Um, So we are middle Sunday of Wimbledon 2019. The first three rounds are in the books with Manic Monday less than 24 hours away. So... the biggest story of the first week of Wimbledon, I wrote about it at The Economist, I've also written something this morning at the Tennis Abstract blog, is the 15-year-old sensation, Corey Goff. She blasted through qualifying, something that we discussed last week on the podcast. She won her first round match against the 23 years older Venus Williams. She then beat Magdalena Rivera-Kova, who's made a semifinal here at Wimbledon. She also beat Polona Herzog in a... a Pretty long, quite close match in the third round. So here she is, 15 years old, first Wimbledon, first slam main draw. She's in the second week. She's facing Simona Halep tomorrow. Huge match, um, huge accomplishment for the youngster. And Carl, what what can we make of this? I mean, is it, we've seen so few players accomplish so much at such a young age. Uh, and we have... If you go back, you pretty much have to go back to the 90s to find comparable players. And you have the Capriottis of the world, the Martina Hingises, who who had a breakout like this and then immediately were, were superstars. And then you have someone like Anna Kornikova, who was as good at 15 or 16 as really she ever was. And what's your take on Corey Goff at this, at this point? Where does she go from here? I think she can go much higher. And Kornikova did. Uh, could imagine her as a number one with several slams for sure. What what her sort of like expectation is is a little tougher. I was trying to think about that, but I was just distracted by being nervous about delivering the 14th or less clunker in the history of the show. So it's a lot of pressure. I'm glad you're aware of that. We're going to give our best. Yeah. you got to be a pressure player today. Yeah. I mean, I think probably number three or something is 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 like the average of an enormous range of possibilities she's so young with so few matches it probably doesn't matter that much in the scheme of things but i am so much more impressed because she did it from qualifying and from beating some tough players in qualifying pretty soundly uh, that somehow makes her fourth round to me a lot more significant even though those were three lower ranked players than than the one she she beat i think maybe with one exception um so, yeah, I mean, she's incredibly young. She's already got a big serve, but could serve much bigger given her height and just seems so resourceful, uh, pretty calm and was was so tough in coming back in that third round match. I still think she wouldn't frame that match from this tournament because it was somewhat ugly and it wasn't against her toughest opponent. But um, that feels like the kind of match where if there was anything lingering sort of mentally from her being so young, that that would be where we would have seen it. And we kind of saw the opposite of the stereotype of a young player. So very impressed. Yeah. That's one thing I highlighted in the article that I wrote for the economist after her first round win is yeah, you you tend to think of young players as having the physical tools, maybe not knowing how to put them together or having the mental skills to execute them when they need to. And and Goff was exactly the opposite of that. I mean, there were two games in the second set against Venus when she double faulted twice. And one of those, um, I, th- I think the double fault took her down to 30-40 and she bounced back and won the game. The other one, her second double fault, lost her the game. And then she came right back and, and broke Venus in the following game. So, like, I feel like there's this, there's this art to, well, Robbie Koenig loves the phrase selective memory. Um... Uh, so you're going to make mistakes on the court, but you can't think about them that much. You can't let them linger. And we see a lot of players, young and old, but particularly immature players who do let them linger. And if you double fault twice to lose a game, then, I mean, that can that can ruin your whole set. And, I mean, there are, there are players who've made a career out of just pouncing on players who who lose 
as through these moments of mental weakness, Corey Goff didn't do that. And that's sort of the exact opposite of what we'd expect from a 15 year old with her kind of talent. So she really does have the whole package, which I think really raises the question coming back to this Kornikova, Hingis, like the history of young players is you point out that the serve is one area that she can improve, but I mean, the mental game is strong. She's resourceful. She knows how to move around the court. She knows how to, how to hit different shots. She doesn't have a really weak side. So, I mean, surely she, she can improve. Probably she will improve, but I mean, how close are we to seeing like the, the, the final product of the, the tennis player that, that Corey Goff is like, like are are there are there holes besides maybe five miles an hour on the serve that that she can still plug and become maybe a, another level or two better than she is right now? The commentators thought in the third round that she that her forehand was exposed as not really a weapon and sometimes a liability. I, I thought that was a little extreme, and that was also a different match than her other matches, but. Yeah, I think that she could probably add more more sting to that shot and more consistency when, when hitting aggressively. Uh, and that that's something that we've seen players improve over the years, too. Uh, you know, to your, to your earlier point, I, while the stereotype is that a younger player might be more likely to break down, and while there are examples of that, we can also think of many teenage champions who seemed fearless, and they didn't need selective memory because they didn't have great uh, failures to to forget. And I've heard the, the opposite theory that the older a player gets, the more failure they've ac- accumulated just by virtue of longevity and the harder maybe it is for them in pressure situations because they can remember what it felt like to lose. Um, well, so, some, pe- some people say Paul-Henri Matu's entire career was a disappointment because he lost a Davis Cup match against Mikhail Eugenie. Like that's... That's the story of his whole career from that perspective. Yes. <laughs> to, to your point. And yes, and it's probably not totally fair, but there probably are specific players. I mean, I've also heard that about, oh, one of the guys who lost at, on Jimmy Connors' run, maybe Brian something. Do you remember the story? No, was I guy don't. Who, who was up two sets, I think, to Connors and lost the match. And this was Connors swaggering his way into the semis at the U.S. Open and at age 39, I think. So, you know, that video of that match was being played nonstop at the U.S. Open, and it just was haunting this guy everywhere he went on tour, and it kind of ended his career early. Wow. Okay. Again, I'm probably simplifying the story, and maybe yeah, and, and, we'll and, include and, in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, this is also something that can be tested, at least in, in theory. I, I, it's one of those things that I've put off testing because you always want to have more data, but we might get to the point where I, I think I have something like 70 years of reasonably extensive point-by-point data. So I'm not sure we can analyze entire career trajectories of single players, but we can look at like how players recover from double faults or getting broken or, or whatever whatever sort of situation that requires poise that you, you want to pull out. Um, we can at least compare how teenagers do to 30-somethings and, and things like that. We're probably a decade away from being able to look at entire career trajectories and see how today's teenagers um, turn out to be as 30-somethings. But theoretically, we can get an answer to that to get a sense of whether it's the young people who are immature or the, the older players who who can think of, who can better imagine the bad things that happen if they don't re-break or they don't convert a break point or something like that. And, you know, we might not have to wait till someone's 30s. It, it occurred to me that this may also be at work very early in a player's career, but kind of their second time through. So next year at Wimbledon, assuming Goff is in the main draw, um, you know, will, will it be different when she, than this year when by cliche she had nothing to lose? Uh, will, will there be a different kind of pressure, even though she's a year older, has more experience with pressure and so on? And I realize that I'm, I'm sounding, I'm, I'm using a lot of classic, tennis TV cliches, but from an analytics point of view, like you could look at that sort of next level, next age group. And we've seen that with a lot of breakthrough stars in recent years where they've kind of regressed afterwards and it could just be regression to the mean, or maybe there's something else at work, but Zverev, um, we saw sort of dramatic and injury contributing situation with Eugenie Bouchard, uh, but lots of first time slam champs on the women's side, Ostapenko. Um, anyway, 
so there there could be many other reasons but this is one thing maybe that you could look at yeah and this this idea of the the sophomore slump is i mean it's something that comes up in other sports all the time too and some of it is is selection bias because we only really care about the sophomore seasons of the people who are outstanding in their first year and the people who were outstanding in their first year like let's just take Ostapenko like we're we're paying a lot more attention or we paid a lot more attention in 2018 to Ostapenko than we did to say Daria Kazakina because Ostapenko was coming off the slam and Kazakina wasn't uh, they both were disappointing in their different ways but Ostapenko was the one who had the sophomore slump because we knew to watch for her because she she did have the outstanding performance the year before, even if there was some some luck, luck of the draw, whatever involved in that. So there's some selection bias. But the thing I keep coming back to is, and this is the reason why I asked about what the what the gaps were, the possible room for improvement in Corey Goff's game, is it feels like so many players arrive pretty much as the player they're going to be. And maybe Zverev's a good example of that too. We have this image in our head that that because the peak age is 28 or 26 or whatever, depending on the tour, um, that if you see a, an awesome 18-year-old, they have 10 years of improvement ahead of them. But if they're if they're performing at such a high level, I think the, the probability that they have a lot of room to grow is is that much less. So for instance, when I was doing some some research on Andreescu, Bianca Andreescu, when she was having her breakthrough first quarter of this year, I found that 18-year-olds who are performing that well, they gain an average of 70 more ELO points over the course of their career, up to their career peak. These are 18-year-olds, so I mean a little older than Corey Goff, but still players with a lot of time, a lot of room to develop. 70 ELO points is nothing. I mean, that's that's a swing, from, less than a swing from winning a slam. So... What that tells me is that when someone breaks through, once they've established themselves as someone to watch, they pretty much are the player they're going to be. And there are exceptions to that, absolutely. But your median projection over the long term of most players should be pretty close to what they are now. I mean, the only question with Corey Goff is, when do you when do you make that decision? I mean, it seems like we're, it's too early to say, this is who Corey Goff is now because she's you know, 15 and a half years old and we've only seen her play a half dozen matches. But in a year, can we say the Corey Goff we're looking at at 16 and a half and with a year on tour, this is pretty much the Corey Goff we're going to get for her career? I mean, I I have no idea what the answer to the, that question is, but I mean, the first thing you said, Carl, was that there's such a huge range of possible outcomes for her. And I mean, we don't even know what to expect in a year, let alone what to expect over the course of her entire career. Yeah, I think to me the gap between where she is in age and 18 is is critical. Like there are lots of players we can say we saw them a bunch at 18 and we saw what their game was and that's what their game remained, maybe with some improvements in shot selection and in, and in physique. Um, but I don't I don't remember seeing much of the, of the other young players we described at Corey's age. So. Um, I mean, I guess that's more ignorance than proof of anything, but uh, it just makes sense to me that during those years when we weren't seeing them much on tour, they're, if anything, in the juniors draws, I mean, while playing against juniors and just, you know, sort of away from the spotlight that things were still happening in their game in those years. And then that's, that's the question is, is so you're right. Like if, if you were to take the current top 100 and look at what they were doing at age 15, I mean, yeah, most of them were playing Slam Junior. Some of them weren't even good enough to be doing that. Uh, I don't know where Angelique Kerber was, but I, I recently looked this up, and she didn't win a Wimbledon match until she was 22. So, I mean, she was a, a huge way away from, from what she eventually became. But, like I was trying to get at before, that the, the aging trajectory is so different for different players. And as soon as someone is able to break through, once they're good enough to compete at tour level, then they've separated themselves from being able to be forecast as a typical 15 year old. So if you, if they're good enough to compete at age 15, then maybe we should be treating them more like a 17 or 18 year old in terms of development time. And if you, I, I, started this out by framing this as a Kornikova versus Hingis debate. And Kornikova is the, the, the classical example of someone who didn't really develop after a breakthrough of 15. But Hingis is not a bad example either. I mean, Hingis was so good at 15 that she basically came out of the gates and started winning slams. And I guess it would be tough to tell if she improved much beyond that. But her peak didn't last 
that long at, at, beyond her teens. So the Hingis we saw at age 15, that's another example of someone who wasn't that far off from their peak. Like maybe her peak came at 17 or something, but it isn't like she had this decade of improvement that would that that we can we can see in the stats that she compiled over that time. You really put your thumb on the scale, Sackman. Two examples of who she could be, and they both peaked before 18? Well, that's the... <laughs> fair point, yes. Um, but I, that's the thing. I didn't mean to. <laughs> like, are, are there examples of breakthrough 15-year-olds who peaked a lot later? I mean, that, that's, that's the relevant question. I think it's tough to answer because there aren't that many breakthrough 15-year-olds. But... Um, like Nicole well, White. I mean, the Williams sisters were known quantities before they were 15. I don't know if they broke through on tour or at a slam the way she did. So maybe that's not a fair comparison. But, I mean, they were on national TV when, oh God, before they were 10, I think, like because of what a phenomenon they were at tennis. Yeah, they, they were known quantities. I don't think either of them won slam matches at 15. But, I mean, they were, they were competitive at 16. So they're in the same category. And... The tough thing to decide then is, it, 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 were they, I mean, they were really competitive at 16, so they weren't quite at their peak, but even though they've both lasted so long, it's not so much that they waited so long to reach their peak, it's just that they stayed close to their peak for a long time, which is what really sets them apart. I mean, they were great. And their peaks are so high that they could come off it and still compete at slams. Right. So, so they were great as teenagers, but unlike most WTA teenage sensations, they are still somehow great in their mid and late 30s. Um, well, we're not going to be able to resolve this issue today, but I, I, I am really fascinated by this concept that the, that aging curves depend so much on, on when you break in and, and the idea that when you arrive, we're looking at a lot of what you have to offer. And maybe Corey Goff will, will break that mold and maybe she doesn't need to make break that mold. Maybe she'll win Wimbledon and what she is right now is one of the best players in the world. That seems a little far-fetched, but, uh, but it could happen. I mean, that's, that's not that far off from, from what Martina Hingis's story is. Um, one more thing about, about Goff, we'll come back around to the, the draw later on in the episode, but um, her next opponent, like I said before, Simona Halep, is a very different player than the three people she's played in the main draw so far. I mean, all three of the the people Goff has played are big servers, uh, not great defenders. So Venus Williams, Rabarakova, Polona Herzog, um, big weapons, but very different from a counterpuncher like Simona Halep. Do you think that Goff is going to struggle more playing someone with with this style that she hasn't really confronted at this high of a level yet? Yeah, I do. I think that she needs still a fair number of errors from her opponents, and she's not going to get that much help from Halep. And it's hard to imagine her competing with Halep in terms of just like endurance through a grinding match. So I think it's going to be pretty tougher, and it'll be interesting to see if she comes out with a different game plan against a different opponent, or if that's like already a part of her game. Yeah, I mean, that. If, if she does, if she does have a radically different, well, maybe not radically, but a, a noticeably different game plan uh, for someone like Halep, that would take my estimation of her her mental capabilities. That's not quite what I mean, but everything she brings to the table, that would take that would take it to another level. Uh, yeah, you could say versatility, too. Versatility, that's a, yeah, that's, that's perfect. Um, so all eyes on that match on, on Monday, absolutely. So, another big story from the first week that I want to talk about, Nadal Kyrgios, the, probably the most talked about men's match of the first week. I think that's fair to say. It was definitely the most talked about, talked about men's match, in that there was a lot of talk about how it was the most hyped match and how everyone in the locker room was going to be watching it. So, we're going to spend this segment talking about how it was so much talked about, all the talking about it. Go, okay, Carl. you know I'm ready. <laughs> so Nadal came through. It didn't end up being a super difficult match, but it was four sets. Curios um, yep. won one, I think, um, but not not as tight as people had hoped. It seems like this is, even though Curios has beaten Nadal on a hard court, um, he's always and always, at Wimbledon. Yeah. Uh, this seems like the opportunity for Kyrgios. I mean, if, if Kyrgios is going to take a step forward and 
and become a threat at slams, this is the sort of big match he needs to win. And he didn't come that close. Uh, do you think that that Nadal had a game plan here that that sort of neutralized Kyrgios's weaponry on grass? Uh, I think maybe the grass this year neutralized his weaponry to some extent. I mean, people are saying, and the ace numbers seem to be corroborating that it's a slower surface this year. So it was still grass. Kyrgios still won some points with unreturned serves, but it seemed like Nadal was getting into more return points. And also once he was in them, he was able to control them somewhat like he does on a clay court, not not at all to the same extreme. Uh, and that that was enough because Kyrgios is such a weak returner. Nadal is a really smart server. Um, and, you know, despite a lot of recent losses on grass, has actually had a lot of great Wimbledons and made five finals maybe. Um four or five finals. So, um, yeah, I think that, I think that it was a lot of it was the surface itself, not being what it was when they met here in 2014. And also, um, Nadal just being a much better player overall. So that lets us jump ahead to something else I had on our agenda for today, which is the surface. And, and as you point out, a lot of people are at least under the impression that it's slower. I think fed thinks it's slower. Uh, Ronich has said it's slower. Nadal said something, I don't know, I'm not sure if it was directly contrary to that, but he said he thought it was about the same and that people were making judgments about it based on their own games. Uh, it, it seemed a little bit cryptic, but he, he wasn't totally on board the, the grass is slower train. Uh, but you think, Carl, that it's playing slower? Uh, that's That's my best guess now. I'm not sure at all. But based on looking at stats of matches... And how many aces players hit relative to what I would have expected for the length of the match and it being Wimbledon. And then just based on the comments I heard, and it sounds like there being more comments about it being slow than about it being the same. And I don't think I've heard anyone say it's faster. So to me, that adds up to a somewhat clear picture. But yeah, I'd love to see the stats after the tournament. Yeah, I'm going to try to run some... Um either tonight or tomorrow and because really through three rounds it doesn't tell the whole story but three rounds is, is what seven eighths of the matches in the whole tournament so most of the data that that we're going to get we already have um so the, this is one example of a match that might have been flipped be or at least affected by slower grass. And there's there's some names, especially in the men's draw, who I don't think we'd expect to see on a true grass court uh, making the fourth round. Like Verdasco comes to mind. Um, Guido Pela is another. Maybe Benoit pairs in that category. Batista Agu, although we talked about in the recent episode, his grass elo is, is surprisingly high. Um, yeah, and I would I would quibble with two of the others, too. Verdasco's made a quarterfinal here before and was up okay. two sets on Mari. And um, Pear has, like, complained about lots of things, but <laughs> I think there's a lot about grass that suits his game, including that he's terrific at net and terrific with drop shots. So I, I never really understood his antipathy. Yeah, I, I, and I totally agree with his with his game style, with, with his assets being well-suited to grass, but I, I just don't think the results have been there. And whatever whatever the disconnect is, that's what I was basing that on. But, but sure, I mean, the... the the, the possibility was always there. But on the flip side, we have Sam Query in the fourth round. We have Milos Ronic very comfortably in the fourth round. Uh, Matteo Berrettini, uh, who, who's excelled on the other grass so far this, this season and hit, hit a lot of aces on clay. Uh, he's someone that's through. So, so we have kind of a mixed bag of results of the typical grass court names um, having a pretty comfortable path versus a few surprises. So, I mean, are there other, other matches so far that you think have been affected by the surface? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to hard to say in the watching. Uh, we can name individual players who went, went farther than we expected. You named some. There were some who were surprised just to get to the third round. But it's... Um, yeah, it's so like you could you could watch have a sample of hundreds of points from a match, and the difference could be in just a handful, and identifying them could be really tough, and some could go the other way too. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's it's hard. Yeah, that, and one match that comes to mind that fits the 
fits your description of having maybe just a few points affect the outcome is is the match that determined at all's fourth round appointment uh, appointment <laughs> opponent between um, Jess Souza and Dan Evans. And I mean, Dan Evans is I mean a pretty fringy guy to be projecting into the fourth round of a slam, but at the same time, he's really good on grass, really excelled at the grass court challengers. And Souza is not somebody you think of as a grass court specialist. So that match went to five sets. Uh, flip a few points here and there, and it's Dan Evans in the fourth round. And it would seem that if you make the grass faster or you make the grass slipperier or something like that, that that is going to go in Evans' favor, and that might have reversed the outcome of that match. Uh, but there will be many. I mean, that, that's something that also needs more research. And by more, I mean any, is we talk a lot about surface speed. I've, I've come up with some numbers to, to quantify surface speed, but... What we really want to know, the reason people are so fascinated by this, is the effect of surface speed on specific match outcomes. And we have a general sense that, you know, on a, on a slow surface, Nadal beats Federer, or on a fast surface, Federer beats Nadal, but most matchups are not that clear-cut. Most surfaces are not extreme in one direction or the other. So it's tough to know whether slowing down the grass means flipping one point out of 100, three points out of 100. I mean, what does that, what does that really do uh, to most of these matchups? And I'm not sure we have any answers to those questions. Yeah, I mean, the optimal is you get the same two players playing each other on different surfaces close to, with the matches pretty close to each other. Um, but to get, like, an, there's so much noise involved in that beyond surface speed, and to get enough pairs like that to go beyond the noise is going to be a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one one sort of angle of attack that I've thought of before is just taking the, the really common head-to-heads, like the big four, basically, and the handful of players that these guys are facing all the time, um, and and look at at how how well surface speed does correlate with results. And that would at least give us a start. I mean, like I say, with Federer and Nadal, it seems like there's pretty clear trends, probably less clear with, say, Djokovic-Nadal, even less clear with Djokovic-Murray or something like that. But that would at least give us some indication of whether there's something there to, to go further with. So that might have been a factor with Nadal-Kyrgios, maybe with a faster grass it would have taken one more set we don't really know um but speaking of the big four this is yet another week where thanks to andy murray we can talk about doubles without jamming it into the last five minutes of the episode so we've seen andy murray play um men's doubles with pierre ugerbert they lost in the second round to mectic and skugor i think it was and then last night was the long-awaited first round of murray serena williams mixed doubles which they won uh, what are your thoughts at this point, Carl? Like we, we're, We've talked in previous episodes about Murray potentially becoming a double specialist, whether he could be one, how good he would be. I ran some numbers that suggested he's already one of the top 40 or so uh, men's doubles players in the world. Maybe he was all along, but I mean that, that's based on some, uh, on some more recent data now. Uh, have you seen anything this week that, that updates your view on that or, or gives you more information about what we think about Andy Murray, double specialist? I think he's he could get even a lot better than he is now. I mean, he clearly hasn't had that much serve and volley experience in his career, although he has played a fair amount of doubles, and he uh, is really comfortable at net, but it's a different kind of net play in doubles that I think he could just get better at. I know that we're supposed to say he was at his best in singles as a teenager or already the player he was going to be, but <laughs> well, we're maybe not supposed in... <laughs> to say that. That's just my opinion. <laughs> but maybe, but maybe he's still at a teenager in doubles. Like maybe he's still developing in doubles. That's how it looks to me. Also, he's given himself a tough task by playing with different partners at each event he's come back to. So, you know, there's going to be adjustment. Uh, he lost in the first round at Eastbourne and maybe if they'd won that match and had some time together, they would have won the title. So yeah, I think, I think it's probably not going to be that long-lasting. I think we're not going to see him play. There aren't that many tournaments that are his big UK summer tournaments that he probably feels a lot of incentive and pressure to play. But uh, I hope we get a little more of this until he's ready to play singles because it was a lot of fun and he, he's really good. And maybe he'll be in London, except he needs to stick with a partner to do it. Yeah, that's going to be tricky. But maybe, I'm not sure what Jack Sox injury looks like right now, but... There's your dream doubles team is starting 
starting in Washington, Jack Sock, Andy Murray doubles for the rest of the year. I mean, they basically couldn't lose. Yeah, Sock needs to come back too. And hey, maybe he'll be back in London and grumbling about how he's not a doubles player. Yeah, yeah. There will be one uh, one half of the team who is a doubles player and and complaining that he isn't, and then the other half of the team who uh, is a legit greatest of all time contender. That's exaggerating, but one of the best of all time, uh, who's ad- admitting to the fact he's a doubles player now it would be a fun contrast. He's a legitimate boat contender, best of all time. There you go. And speaking of of doubles partners who are in the conversation for greatest of all time. Like I said, Murray's playing mixed doubles with Serena Williams. He could choose... It seemed like he could choose pretty much whoever he wanted to play mixed doubles, and it it makes sense that he would go with Serena as she has a great doubles track record and and obviously is a great player in any format. But if you were Andy Murray, would you have made the same decision? Well, I'm I'm surprised you said he seems like he could have had any choice. I guess it does seem that way, but by his account, he really struggled to get anyone to say yes. I do not so. believe that for a second. I believe, <laughs> I believe Ashley Barty said no because she's serious about singles and doubles and could very well win both of them. I do not believe <laughs> any of the rest of it. It was a great story. Um, yeah, so I think Barty is an incre- is is, a, is an obvious choice. She had just won the French, and she's been a Grand Slam doubles champion. Is just great at doubles. Um, but after Barty, yeah, I mean, I probably would have gone with Venus first, better doubles player, but uh, maybe Tiafo had already asked her or she had already asked him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, after that, Serena's won, what, 12 Grand Slam titles in doubles with, with Venus, plus one or two gold medals at the Olympics uh, and is the greatest of all time in the women's game. So, yeah, can't, can't think of, clearly I can think of two possibly better partners, but nobody else. Okay. Yeah, I do wonder what, what if any conversations went on before they they went forward with the pairing because the only the only reason not to play with Serena is that she has struggled to stay healthy throughout this whole season. She's withdrawn from multiple tournaments now, and you have to figure that mixed doubles is not her highest priority. And if I'm Andy Murray coming back solely as a doubles player, the one thing I'd want to know is... I'm not going to win a match just to have my partner need to withdraw from the tournament. I mean, that would be a, a major downside to me. And that was my, my first reaction when I saw this pairing is like, oh, crap, Serena's going to do great in the singles. She's going to play one mixed doubles match, and then she's going to withdraw. And it makes perfect sense from Serena's point of view. Maybe it won't happen. I still think there's a, a big risk of that. But if I were in Andy's shoes, that's the one reason I might have opted for someone who... Uh, is is more focused on doubles. Ironically, I would have chosen um, Barbara Barbara Streetseva, who is also still in the singles, so might also still have some incentive to withdraw. But I don't know. That that's that's my one consideration that I didn't really see anybody else talking about. Well, I mean, the the outside of tennis consideration that I'm sure they're both making is that this is an incredible story, and they're getting tons of attention. And not not that they don't already, but. Uh, I mean, this is crossing over, and I'm, this is the kind of story I'm hearing from friends who don't usually follow tennis about. So uh, I think that would be more than a tiebreaker in terms of any other potential pairing. See, Carl, this is really the unique proposition you bring to this podcast, is you have friends from outside of tennis. <laughs> well, I mean, the ones I haven't scared away yet, because I haven't told them to listen to the show. So you're saying in a few years you won't have any of those left? It's that's what the chart looks like. <laughs> Dangerous stuff. So one one more player I want to talk about uh, before we dive into the, forecasting the fourth round is Milos Ronic. And I mentioned him earlier as one of the sort of usual suspects on grass who hasn't had any problem with the possibly slower grass court surface. Uh, he's cruised. He he broke Riley Opelka a bunch of times, which is an accomplishment uh, in and of itself. But when I saw that, the Opelka scoreline was, I mean, to me, a huge shock. I think it was 7-6-6-2-6-1. And my first thought was, wow, did Milos Ronish finally learn how to return serve? So I went and looked at the numbers. His his, uh, return points one percentage for the year for the last 52 weeks is, uh, I think, 32%, which is still a couple of points below the best it ever was at his probably what his peak was when he reached number four in the world. So I'm not sure he's gotten any better. Do you think that, that Ronich is 
we've talked in the past about Kyrios being this guy who can turn it on or off. Like he mostly doesn't care on return points, but when it matters, he can play better. So his 29% of return points won or whatever his stat is, is underestimates his true talent level, at least in high pressure moments. Do you think that Ronic does the same thing that he can just sort of flip a switch on break points and tie breaks and, and win more of those return points than his overall numbers suggest that he does? I'm guessing no, because I thought you ran a kind of com- comparative analysis with Kyrgios and didn't find anyone even close to his level. Yeah, I I wonder if it sort of missed Ronich because he's been, it, it, it might have overlapped with when Ronich had been injured quite a bit. And I it wasn't as thorough as you're giving me credit for. I mean, uh, I don't think I ever tested Ronich specifically. I, there can't be very many players who, who fit the Kyrgios profile. Uh, because the, the the tour average is is so predictable and not very interesting in that regard, but but no, I don't I don't think the case is closed at all on Ronich. Yeah, so I think there's a good chance he does that. Um, is very strategic in when he gives effort and how on on return. Uh, I also think he's a particular threat here because I think he's able to maintain his return game. I mean, I, I need to check the stats to see if this is right, but my memory is that he's about as good on return at Wimbledon or on grass in general as he is off it. And that in itself is a big accomplishment because generally the return games drop. And so combine that with the stronger serve game from him than usual. And he's a bigger threat than usual. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't think about looking at the, at the difference between grass and other surfaces. I just kind of assumed his dropped like everyone else's did, but that would, that would be interesting. And Maybe that's a common thread that runs through some grass court specialists. I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, the same sort of numbers pop up with Sam Query, um, who's another guy who tends to tends to make the news more at Wimbledon than elsewhere. Uh, okay, as promised, let's run through these matches. We might have a few comments on some of them, but our process is going to be similar to what we did uh, during Roland Garros. So before this recording. I went through all 16 of the fourth round matches, men's and women's, and and made my forecasts. After I did that, I noted down what what my ELO ratings had to say about it, and then I also looked at the the betting market. Uh, so now we have three numbers. We just need four. The last one, of course, coming from Carl, and and we can discuss where some differences are and um, anything else that that stems from that. So. Let's start with the men. Top hey, Jeff, the, just before yeah. we do, just uh, to yeah. correct something I said, it looks like Raonic is 33.8 career all surfaces tour level and 32.3 on grass, so a drop of 1.5 percentage points. I think that's maybe less of a drop than average, but it is a drop. So that's, yeah. that's my update. I wouldn't be surprised if it's less than average. You do wonder how it behaves like if there's some absolute minimum, or not absolute minimum, but if there's some realistic minimum that that players hit, like call it call it the Karlovich line of maybe 25% or something. Um, as you get closer to that minimum, I wonder if the differences tend to shrink. I mean, you're going to have some set number of double faults, for instance, that will, are probably consistent across surfaces, maybe even more on faster surfaces. Um, it also turns out his win percentage on grass is only two percentage points higher than career overall. So it could hmm. just be that he's not as I think maybe just because he's done well at Wimbledon a few times, I see him as especially dangerous on grass. And win percentage is always tough because it's so dependent on opponents. And most of Ronich's grass court matches in, a, in his career are probably Wimbledon and Halla or Queens Club. I forget which one he favors. Uh, but then if you look at his hardcourt record as a career, like there's going to be tons of, of 500s with, with probably weaker opponents on average. Uh, but yeah, these are things we could, we could research. Uh, and maybe I will. So, top of the men's draw. First match, Djokovic versus the surprise Hugo Humbert, who knocked out Felix Auger-Aliassime, to my great dismay. Um, I'm guessing you think Djokovic is the underdog here? Yeah, he'll lose in two out of five sets. <laughs> okay, sounds good. What what are your what's your forecast for Djokovic? Eighty three percent. Seriously? Is that way low? Damn it! I'm I'm not saying it's wrong. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised that's what you came up with. But 
That's uh, what I came up with. Which should be like 112%. Yeah, that's what the betting market says. Um, I said 96. Um, Elo says 99. It might be a little bit. I, I didn't update those through the first three rounds, and it's possible that, that I'm, I'm guessing these first three rounds for Humbert are, are pretty close to his entire career of high-level grass court play. So maybe it's more like 98 or 97, but close to 100. And then the betting market's 97 for Djokovic. So, so Carl is in favor of upsets, even when it's not entirely rational to do so. Um, Maybe I know something you don't. Do you? Maybe Djokovic is at the pub right now. Maybe. No, but I don't know anything. I'm in New York. I have no idea. Um, I think he'll win. That would be funny if that was the takeaway people were reviewing from this episode. It's like, oh my God, the news has come out. Djokovic is at the pub. (laughs) So, second match. uh, W. Gilfan versus Fernando Verdasco. You mentioned earlier Verdasco is maybe better than I was giving him credit for on grass courts with some previous success here. Uh, what's your prediction here? Well, your, your scorn came after you'd seen the projection. So I'm wondering what influenced what, um, I'm going to say, but Gofan has not had that many great results recently either. So, uh, I guess I'll give the Belgian a 55% chance. We're on the same page here. And it's interesting you thought that my scorn came from the projection. I was I was more pro Verdasco than either of the algorithms. Um, Elo says 65. The betting market says 73 for Gofan. Um, I said 58. So we're basically on the same page. We both think it's it's going to be pretty close. Uh, it does seem awfully optimistic for Gofan to put him at, at 73%. Maybe the Elo projection of 65 feels more realistic. Um, next up, talking about Ronic, Ronic will face Guido Pela. Um, I mentioned maybe before we started recording, but I mentioned that this was one of the most unanimous projections from the, the, the three we already have on paper. But where do you come in on this one, Carl? Well, I'm going to try to be internally consistent to my own detriment. <laughs> if Djokovic was 83%, then I can't make Ronic more than that. So I'm going to say 78%. Okay, I was 85, Elo's 86, the betting mark is 83. So maybe you should not base your, uh, or maybe you shouldn't anchor your other ones on what you said for Djokovic. Although maybe these all will be upsets and, and you'll be proven right. Yeah, uh, I don't think my goal here for entertainment either, if we want a non-clunker, is to just agree with the other three. Wait, this is, this is supposed to be entertaining? Well, by what standard do you call some of them a clunker? I don't know. I'm pretty sure that I'm not sure how you evaluate the difference between a 78% projection and an 85 in this case without a lot more forecasting than we're actually doing. Um, so yes, I guess by default it's entertaining. <laughs> um, next up, to play that's a the, new podcast name. Yeah, by default, entertaining. I like it. Um, from some university American. So, match four, uh, Bautista Agu versus Benoit Pair. You were more optimistic about Pair than I was, at least in passing. Um, what's your pick for this one? Yeah, but I remember from last week and earlier in this episode, Bautista Agu's grass court elo, and just knowing his results and consistency on all surfaces, I'll give him um, 66%. Wow, it's the it, it's the machines versus the humans. I guess when I say machines, I'm including the betting market, uh, which is also humans. But Elo and the betting market both say 80% on the dot and for Bautista Agu. And I said 64. So you and I are basically in agreement there. Um, probably means we think Pear is going to win one more set than, than the algorithms do. So next match. All-American round of 16 between Sam Query and surprise fourth-rounder Tennis Sandgren. What's your pick? Another guest of 30 Love from the New York Open who's doing well this spring. Um, Query, really tough on grass, as we mentioned. Sandgren, not much of a track record on the surface. And just generally um, not as much success in his career. So I'm going to give Query... Uh, 
All right, 79 from Carl, 72 from me. I I have a hard time really believing in Query, and I, I think Sangren has been, he certainly played well against Fanini yesterday. Um, Elo really loves Sam Query on grass, gives him 87% to win. The betting market gives him 82%. So we've got everything from 72% to 87% for Sam Query, but everybody's voting for Sam, that much is clear. Next up, Rafael Nadal versus Zhao Souza. Your prediction? 92%. All right, there's not much of a story here. I said 93. The betting market says 95. Elo says 91. So, looks like Rafa's into the quarterfinals. Next up, Kane Shikori. I think we've talked about this a little on the on the podcast that... His grass court elo is quite high, and perhaps misleadingly so, because so many of his losses have been by retirement, which are not counted in, in at least my dialect of elo. Uh, so Nishikori, with his possibly inflated grass court elo, going in against surprise fourth rounder Mikhail Kukushkin. Um, what do you think, Carl? 80%. 80% from Carl. I said 87. Elo says 88 and the betting market says 87. So Carl is the biggest Kakushkin fan of the bunch. And well, then, I can't give Nishikori a probability as high as Djokovic. Again, internally consistent. <laughs> well yeah. calibrated. It's a good cluster off, off of the bullseye. Yet yeah, you went up to 92 for Nadal. Oh, yeah, clearly. <laughs> and then also testing this limit is Federer Berrettini, the, the final men's match. What do you think here? 82%. 82. I said 83. Elo says 80. And the betting market says 89 because there are a few Roger Federer fans out there, as you might have noticed. So, okay. No what, huge what kind of hats here. do they wear, Jeff? What kind of hats do they wear? Yeah, I'm just trying to remember like, if I've noticed any Federer fans. Like sailor hats? No, like maybe they wear baseball caps that say something on them. Are they? Is that the... the, the no, that's the Yankees logo I'm thinking of, the NY. Oh, I, yeah. I don't... Nodger Yetterer is not very good at tennis. Yeah. Um, it's tough to get those hats these days. The, the RF logo is, is fading, but there still seem to be a lot of them around. But there are SUA hats available at the Tennis Abstract Store, some University American. Yeah, or just ELO. You can get ELO hats. Um, the No Challenges Remaining store had a, a, a t-shirt that I think I, was based on my suggestion. It said Lucky Loser on it. Um, that's, the, that's the tennis phrase that I want to wear. That's also the name of a podcast. I know that because that was the original name for 30 Love before I realized it was the name of another podcast. Oh, that's such a shame. Well, missed opportunities. Should have started your podcast earlier. Exactly. So shall we do the uh, women's eight matches from the round of 16? Yes, we should. So at the top, we have Ashley Barty against Allison Risk. And I guess this is unfortunately going to bias your prediction a little bit. But I just have to point out, Barty has been an absolute machine this week. Uh, I think she beat Harriet Dart yesterday in 53 minutes or something like that. Um, Somehow it seems like she got better after she uh, reached the number one ranking. So... She looks pretty scary. With that biasing out of the way, uh, what's your forecast here, Carl? Now, an important consideration, this is based on the ELO before Wimbledon started, right? It is, with the sole exception of Halep Goff. Oh, okay. Okay, noted. Um, So, I guess Barty, 85%? Interesting choice. I said 84. The betting market says 84. Elo is only 79. Elo is really, really optimistic about risk on grass. I mean, for well, some good reason. But. Yeah, for a lot of good. She's. We were talking about men who might have had a much better career if we'd had more grass tournaments, but like, she may be of all players the one who would gain the most. Yeah. So it's an interest. It'll be an interesting match. Um, certainly, she'll. Well. Certainly she has the potential to threaten Barty a lot more than, than Barty has been challenged thus far. Um, next match is Serena Williams against Carlos Suarez Navarro. It's a, it's a weird way that draw has 
has emerged because Suarez Navarro beat Lauren Davis, who beat Angelique Kerber. So I, I think we were all expecting a Serena Kerber fourth rounder here, but instead we get Serena Suarez Navarro. Um, what do you think here, Carl? 83%? 83. I said 93. I think I'm a little dis- disappointed that the draw panned out this way. I mean, I, I love Suarez Navarro. She's great fun to watch, but I think of almost all the players who are left, she has less to threaten Serena than anyone else. Uh, so I said 93 for Serena. The betting market says 85, so basically agrees with you. Elo does still not really know what to do with Serena with her time off. Uh, so Elo is only 66% for Serena, but I think we have to acknowledge that's not really reality-based. Yeah, although I, I do think that, you know, my forecast is not in case of, like, fully healthy and fit players, um, but just accounting for, like, all the withdrawals that Serena has had. And, um, you know, she even has struggled at this tournament. So um, so so that's what I'm baking in there. Okay. Uh, and in fairness, ELO doesn't – the 66% for ELO, it, it does take into account uh, Serena's missed time, but – the, that 34% Suarez Navarro wins do not include retirements or withdrawals. I mean, that, that's on the, on the assumption that the match is completed. Uh, okay, next match. Uh, Barbara Streetseva against Elise Mertens. Not as many big names here and some disagreement I can see already in the forecasts. Where do you come in here, Carl? Uh, Streetseva at 58%. All right. I said 54. Elo says 60 for Streets of a... The betting market is 58% for Mertens. She's higher ranked, right? She is, yes. Although Streets of a has the higher grass Elo or grass-weighted Elo. Oh, I like my forecast. I'm just trying to understand that one. Yeah. Yeah, that could be why. Uh I would all. Uh, I don't know how much this weighs in either direction, but Mertens had a big win. Was it yesterday? It was yesterday against Kang Wong. Uh, that was maybe the longest women's match of the tournament so far. If it wasn't, it was close, but close to three hours in that one. Uh, match four: Petra Kvitova versus Johanna Kanta. What do you think? Ooh, that is a that is pretty high level for a fourth round. Yeah. Uh, um. Hmm. And Kanta's been coming in pretty pretty hot from the French. Kvitova came in with an injury, but was the two-time champ. Oh, I guess I'll say Kvitova, 55%. You and Elo are in complete agreement, also 55%. I said 62 for Petra. The betting market says 63 for Petra. So nobody thinks it's going to be lopsided. That much is for sure. Um, next one's interesting. Petra Martic versus Alina Svitolina. What's your guess? Svitolina, 55%. Exactly what the betting market says. Well, within a point. The betting market's 40, or sorry, 54 for Svitolina. Um, I'm 66% Martic, and Elo is 58% Martic. I think she's been playing great on grass. Svitolina has... Uh, never been that good on the surface. Um, she she did beat Sakari, who's also not great on grass. Uh, but, I mean, Svitolina did not look like she had anything special really going on in that match. So, I mean, some room for it to go both ways, but not sure. What makes you think Svitolina's the favorite here? Just overall stronger player. Um, that's all. I mean, I think that's not really consistent with how I've been doing the others, and I agree that the surface does not favor her. But um, it, it feels like the factors come close to a toss-up, and so I chose one of them. All right. Um, next match, Karolina Pliskova versus Karolina Mukova. Pliskova, 79%. Well, we all agree on Pliskova. I said 88%. Elo says 87 The betting market says 86 You're at 79 so not so great for Mukova. I forget whether Mukova was the worst of the 16 in grass Elo. Um, 
that I, I, I updated through the first three rounds. She was definitely in the toward the bottom. Um, next match is one we talked about before, Halep Goff. We agreed that Halep's the, the favorite here, probably by a decent margin. But what what's the number you'd put on that? I feel like it might have been in your blog post, but... Um, yeah, it was. <laughs> I'm going to say 80%. Yeah, that's the number that was in my blog post. Uh, and just to be super clear, I mentioned before that we're using pre-tournament ELOs to generate the ELO forecasts, but this is the one exception because Goff, her, her level has... Well, what we know of her level has changed so much in six matches. So the forecast that's on the on my website is, I think, 94% for Halep, but since since Goff's rating has risen so much. As I discussed in the blog post that Carl mentioned that just went up this morning, um, it's I think it's 79 for according to ELO. The betting market says 80%. I say 85 for Halep because I'm loyal. Um, last match, Diana Yastremska versus Shuai Zhang, uh, or Zhang Shuai. Not the names we expected to see uh, in, the, in the Osaka section of the draw, but here we are. What's your pick? Uh, Yastremska, 51%. Okay. Um, well, you agreed in direction with everyone else. I said 56 for Yastremska. Elo is 69 in favor of Yastremska, which surprises me. Uh, the betting markets are 62% in her favor. So probably not the most watched of the, the eight women's fourth rounders, but could be a close one if the predictions are to be believed. And you're you're a proponent of watching Estremsko whenever possible, right? Oh, she's great fun. Yeah. Um, she's sort of like a mini Sabalenka. She hits really, really, really hard. Uh, she's an entertaining personality as well. Um, okay, so we only have a few minutes before we run out of time here, but picking winners on the men's side, are you, are you still on Team Djokovic there? Yeah, love his draw, and think he's the strongest player anyway, although not by much. Even though there's a 1-6 in six chance he's going to lose in the fourth round to Hugo Humbert? Hey, I gave everyone else except Rafa a greater chance. That's true. Um, very fair to underdogs. That's that's what I like about this guy. Women's side is this is Barty still a favorite? Yeah, a bigger favorite than she was coming in. I I said I was a little bit skeptical because she had been good on grass except at Wimbledon, but that seems like a fluke from how she started. I think she was one and one against Dart, so it was a very clean fifty-three minutes. Yeah, that was that was pretty impressive stuff, and I I did just watch that last night and. Uh, I mean, Dart doesn't have a lot of weapons to, to handle a top player, but she wasn't playing badly. I mean, Barty was just that good. So if we have the, the predicted quarterfinal, Ashley Barty, Serena Williams, what do, do you expect to see for that one? Oh, wow. That's, um, I, I hope people will hype that more than they hype typing Nadal. Curious. Um, well, as long as we hype hyping it and don't <laughs> hype the hyping hyping of Curious Nadal. We might be saved by the bell here. Um, yeah, I would favor Barty just because of, you know, her recent record and success and um, Serena's inconsistency this year, but whew, not by much. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's so hard thinking about a peak is the wrong word, but like a, a, a fit and Serena like Serena, it's just tough to imagine her losing. And that's always the struggle of forecasting her matches. Uh, we've watched her win so much over the years, often in pretty devastating form that even someone playing as well as Barty's playing right now, it's tough to imagine her being able to solve that problem. So, I mean, I would have been happy with that as the final. Uh, it might end up being being better than the final, maybe even more hyped than the final if we're lucky. Uh, in our last minute or so before we, we wrap up this episode, we didn't get to talk about any of the any of some net play research that was sort of triggered by a conversation we had in last week's podcast. Um, I wrote a couple things on the Tennis Abstract blog about how net play has changed on grass over the last several decades. I know Carl has a lot of thoughts on that stuff because I have the emails to prove it. Um, maybe we'll have some more 
data and speculation from me on the blog between now and next week, but that's something that I, I hope we can talk about in the future. If you're interested in that stuff, uh, be sure to check out the blog and, and, and read through those. I have some interesting visualizations as well, or at least attempts at interesting visualizations. So as we're talking about the grass slowing down and how players play on grass and returning on grass and all those things, uh, that's, that's some data to pair with those discussions. So, Carl, any final thoughts before we wrap up episode 69? Just want to thank you for writing enough material to fill the agendas of many episodes during the slow weeks of July and August. Well, you are welcome. I'm doing what I can. Uh, yeah, I think there are five new blog posts up since the last podcast. So, so yeah, if you're looking for something to do on Middle Sunday um, or during the next Ronich match as he, as he spends... 30 seconds between aces and you end up a little bored. That's some, some good background reading. Uh, so, so yeah, that wraps up episode 69 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. I'm Jeff Zachman, and with me has been Carl Bialik. Thank you, Carl. Thanks, Jeff. And listeners, thank you for listening, and we'll see you after Wimbledon in a week.